Again, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Zach. I'm the lead pastor here. It's a joy to get to serve in this church, and I'm really glad that you are a part, whether this is one of your first Sundays or you've been here a long time. You matter to God, and you matter to us. Today is Vision Sunday, and we're taking time. We do this, uh, trying to do this twice a year, once in January, once in August, uh, to take time to look up from the day-to-day kind of pressures and things that we have going on and to remind ourselves of who we are and where we're going as a people. In January, when we took this day, we focused on who we were. We focused on our core identity. We talked about being sons and daughters, meaning being people who, instead of being defined by all the things we could define ourselves by, are defined primarily by the Father's love for us and defined by the inheritance that we have in Him. We're sons and daughters who encounter Jesus We're people with a living and active relationship with God. And if you're new here and you're like, well, I don't have a relationship with God or I don't know, it seems distant. I want you to know this is a place where you can encounter Jesus and people you can learn to encounter him with and to build a real relationship with God because we believe that Jesus is the bread of life, that he's the life that makes life worth living. And knowing him is the fullness of life. And so we want to be sons and daughters who encounter Jesus. We want to practice his ways. We want to be people that don't just say we're about Jesus, but we want to live it out. We want to practice. We want to live his lifestyle. We want to follow his teaching. We want to have his ethics. And we know that as we do that, as we practice, we're not going to be perfect, but as we are trying to put that into practice, God works in our lives, and he grows us up like oaks of righteousness. And I bet you want a life at the end of your days that looks like an oak of righteousness. We want to practice his ways and we want to build his kingdom. We want to be be a part of seeing our world transform that our city, our nation, and the nations of the earth might look more like heaven. That we'd follow that prayer that Jesus gave us to pray, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That's who we are and that's what we're about. And we want to do that together. We want to do that in community with one another, not just kind of, I'm doing my deal, you're doing your deal, but that God has brought us together as a people. That's who we are. I want to speak to today as we talk about vision. I want to speak not about who we are per se, although that's important, but I want to talk about how we're going to live that out, a place for us to grow, a way to take these values and this identity and begin to put it in practice in a greater and greater way toward greater and greater impact. And we're going to do that by looking at Luke 15. I love Luke 15. It's one of my favorite passages of Scripture. If you're new to the Bible, just highlight this. You could highlight the whole chapter. It's awesome. And so we're going to be there today, and I've just been waiting. I have been waiting for weeks and even months. When I, when I saw we were getting to that point in Luke, I've just been so excited. And as I was preparing for Vision Sunday and just seeking the Lord, I was reminded of in the book of Revelation when Jesus speaks to the churches. He speaks to different churches, and he gives them different words. He gives them commendations and encouragements for how they're living their life. He gives them corrections for where they've gotten off track. And he gives them challenges for where he's calling them to go. And each of those, it says, let the Spirit, he who has ears hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And I imagine if Jesus were to speak to us directly today, that he would speak to us out of this Luke 15 passage. I believe it is a word for the season of our church. 
All scripture is good. All scripture is God-breathed. But sometimes you find those passages that it's like, man, this is just what I need in this season. And I believe this is one of those for us. And so let's read it together. If you, uh, if you would open your Bibles, if you need a Bible, they're in the seat back or the seat rack underneath the seat in front of you. Uh, if you're using the Pew Bible, we're going to be on page 848. That's 848. If you're on your device or your own Bible, we're going to be in Luke chapter 15, 1 through 10. Now the tax collectors and sinners, they were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So the chapter starts out highlighting this controversy that's going on in the life of Jesus, in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus is controversial. He is not. Everybody doesn't get along with him. He is is pursuing a very definite path. And people either love him and flock to him or they hate him and run the other way. Jesus is in the midst of controversy over and over and over again. And here the controversy is around who he is eating with. Now, if you uh, will think back to your junior high days, or if you are in junior high, if you'll think to school about to start, you know the junior high cafeteria at school, it's very important who you eat with. It's very important who is at your table, right? You eat with your friends. You eat with with people that are close to you. You eat with people that you're like, man, this is my group. This is my crew. This is my team. That's who you eat with. You don't eat with outcasts. You don't eat with people who disagree with you. You don't eat with people who don't look like you. You eat with your people. And in Jesus' day, it was much the same way. Who you ate with really, really mattered. Because what it said was, these are my friends. This is my family. These are the people that I uh, accept and affirm. This is my crew. And Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners. And this was ruffling some feathers amongst the people of God in quite a dramatic way. In Jesus' day, the people of God referred to tax collectors. They had a little nickname for them. I don't know if you have a nickname for the IRS, but, but in their day, their nickname for the tax collectors was the enemies of God. They viewed the tax collectors as the enemies of God because they were crooked. And they robbed from people, and they abused people, and they oppressed people. And they were manipulative, and they were greedy. So he said, these are God's enemies. And here, we see Jesus claiming to be God, sitting down at a table of friendship, with those known as the enemies of God. Huh. Sinners. That was a loose term used to describe, you can fill in the blank, maybe if you brought uh, some friends home like this when you were in high school, they're raising, your parents are raising an eyebrow. These are people with with unwholesome lifestyles. They're living sinful, immoral uh, lifestyles. There's a term they use, sinners. And here Jesus, the Holy One of Israel, is sitting at the place of friendship with people who are opposing the pathway of holiness. It's controversial. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they're upset. They're angry. They're frustrated with Jesus. And sometimes when we read these stories, we can look back and think, oh, long ago, how foolish Pharisees and tax collectors, don't you, 
know better, silly Pharisees. You know, we can think that. But what I want to tell you, man, if we were sitting in their shoes, we probably would be feeling all the same things they're feeling. We'd probably be feeling just like the same thoughts that they're having. Like if, if Jesus is eating a meal, basically saying, I'm friends or I accept tax collectors, that seems an affront to all the abuse and injury and harm that they've caused. We'd get upset. You and I, we'd get upset because it does matter. If you're being taken advantage of, it sure does matter. The same thing with sinners. We would be offended. We would be angry. And so when you read this, don't read about it just as people long ago. This is something that the people of the people of God, we have these feelings regularly. These are not them over there. This is us. And Jesus begins to tell three stories that he wants his people, he wants these Pharisees and these tax collectors to see and to understand that explain his motives, why he's doing what he's doing. And more than just explain his motives, he's trying to offer them a way of life or a vision, a spirit even, that was to mark their lives, that was to mark the people of God. And that I would put before you is to mark our lives in terms of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. These are the priorities of the kingdom. And so let's read the first parable. We're going to do two parables today and then the third one next week. The first parable is about a shepherd and a sheep. And Jesus says this in verse 3. He tells them this parable. He says, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. So in their day, having a hundred sheep was not an incredible amount. It was not a Warren Buffett amount. But it was way more than kind of having one or two, right? You, you have 100 sheep. That's a lot of sheep. If we were to think about 100 sheep in this room, that's a lot of sheep. And he says, and you lose one of those sheep. You lose one of the, the hundreds. So you have 99 left. And he says this, doesn't the shepherd leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And I've sat with this question probably for hours this week, being like, I actually don't know that that's what I would do. I don't know that's what you'd do, right? If I have 100 sheep and I lose one of them, you know, I'm sad. But my material life is not affected in any real way. Sheep have babies. I know this. I have 100 of them. So my, my kids aren't affected. They're still going to have clothes for school. They're going to still have meat, you know, for food. They're They're good. My family is not affected. We have the resources, right? We only lost one. I didn't want to lose that one, but it's, I'm not going to lose any sleep over it. And yet, Jesus is painting a different picture. And I believe it's meant to catch them off guard like it would catch us off guard today. Because I don't think it's obvious that the shepherd would go looking for the sheep. Because the shepherd's not in need of that sheep. And I think that's the point. I think that's the question that Jesus is driving at for us to wonder, well, why would the shepherd go looking for the sheep? And the only answer that I can come up with is it's out of the goodness and the kindness and the love of the shepherd that he would go because he's not in need. 
He doesn't need that sheep for anything. Why would he go? Why would he risk going out there? Love, goodness, kindness. That's why he would go. That's the only reason I could think of, and I think that's the point. The church historically has interpreted the shepherd as Jesus. And this going looking for the sheep is Jesus coming in the flesh at the incarnation. And not searching for a lost sheep per se, but searching for a lost humanity. And he doesn't do it out of need. It's not like he is in lack. Jesus is rich, possessing everything. And yet out of goodness and love and kindness, he has come. And he goes after the sheep. Until he finds it. And then when he finds it, he does something again that I'm like, really? He joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. He calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I don't know that I would do that. I don't know that you would do that. I think I'd be like, great, I'm ready to go to bed or I'm ready to watch, you know, Sports Center or something like that. I don't know that I'd be like, I found that one sheep. This is so great. Let's have a party. But again, we see the character of God highlighted here. We see that he celebrates people. And so we're seeing the character of God on, on display. And Jesus says, I tell you, in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. It's as if he's saying to the Pharisees and tax collectors, the reason that I eat with tax collectors and sinners is because I'm like a shepherd going after lost sheep, motivated out of love, motivated out of goodness, motivated out of kindness, with a heart to celebrate people. It doesn't mean that he's affirming everything that they do. But out of his own love, he's in pursuit of them. And he wants the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. He wants the people of God to get. This is what Jesus is about. And then this is what we're called to be about as well. Then he goes into another parable, similar. He says, or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search for it carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I found my lost coin. In the same way I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So very similar story, right? Instead of a lost sheep, it's a lost coin. Instead of a shepherd, it's a woman, householder. And this is important, just as an aside. Luke is so faithful to us to help all of us see the value that Jesus places on women. Every chapter, almost every story, there's a woman being highlighted. And here, it's not the male shepherd that's representing the character of God. It's the woman who's representing the character of God. I don't have time to go into the fullness of that, but I want to make sure that you see Luke over and over and over again says, hey, this is how Jesus treats women. So this Householder, this woman, she loses one of her ten coins or a tenth of her paycheck or a tenth of her savings. Now, whereas if I had a hundred sheep and I lost one, I'm not really going to care. I'm not really going to do anything about it. Uh, if I have, uh, lose a tenth of my paycheck or a tenth of my savings, well, now uh, that's a different story. 
I imagine the same is true for you. If your next paycheck came a tenth less, you'd be like asking HR, like, um, what happened here? Or if you checked your bank account and it was a tenth less and you couldn't figure out why, you'd be calling Wells Fargo being like, what has happened to my money? Right? Very different story. This is not uh, kind of out of lack of need that she's looking. But man, this coin is valuable. I think this parable is meant to highlight another aspect of Jesus' motivations. Where Jesus is not in need, but out of goodness and love, he has come searching for a lost humanity. Jesus also sees value in people. Instead of thinking about the tax collector and the sinners as sheep, think about them as coins. And Jesus is going searching because they're valuable. They don't look like him. They don't think like him. They don't value what he values. They wouldn't vote the way he would vote if they had votes back then. They, they don't, none of that stuff. They don't believe the same things that he'd do. And yet, Jesus finds them valuable because they're made in the image of God. Do you know that people are valuable to Jesus? Do you know that people that don't look like you are valuable to Jesus? Do you know the people who don't think like you? I get so offended that people don't think like I think. I can't believe it. And yet Jesus finds value in them. People that don't vote like you vote are valuable to Jesus. People that weren't born in the same place you were born are valuable to Jesus. People whose skin color and language and culture are different than your own are valuable to Jesus. And he's wanting the Pharisees and the tax collectors to see this. He's wanting them to see his heart. That he's pursuing a lost humanity motivated out of love and goodness. That he's pursuing people because they're valuable to God. And he wants the Pharisees to see this because he wants them to know him. And he wants the Pharisees and the tax collectors to see this so that they might enter into the same story. Both that they would find the grace that they need, but also that they would be moved by the music. My youngest son, River, wherever we are, if music kicks on, he will start to dance. We were out eating Mexican food this week, or my wife and kids were, and I got a video of it. Uh, they're, they're, you know, in the restaurant, he's got refried beans and rice. He's one and a half. He's going to be two in September, so he's more than one and a half. He's almost two. Little guy. But, he, man, he's got that refried beans going into his mouth, and the music comes on. And then he starts to dance in the high chair and eat the beans. He moves to the music everywhere we go. This is music that Jesus wants his people to move to, to hear the tune and to be like, oh, that's a beat that I want to get into. Now, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, Many of them never responded that we know of. Many of them never entered in. Some did, but many didn't. The question for us today that this brings up is will you and I, will we enter into the music? Will we move to this rhythm? Will we let the way that Jesus sees people his love and his goodness in pursuing a lost humanity, seeking to redeem it. 
the value that he sees in people, will we let that be the music that shapes our lives? This message, this spirit is meant to shape the identity of the people of God. We're meant to understand our own story in this because we're meant to understand ourselves as tax collectors and sinners and Christ has come for us. But we're more than those that just have been rescued. We're called to be rescuers. We're called to be ambassadors for Christ. We're called to enter into this same mission. And this is to shape our value system. This is to shape our relationships. And this is to shape the purpose and mission of our lives. We live in a generation, and I'm so prone to it, that says the mission and purpose of your life is you. The fulfillment of your life is if your hopes and dreams are fulfilled. And Jesus says that's much too small of a story. That's much too narrow of a life. I have so much more for you. The purpose of your life is so much bigger than how your life ends. But it's about him and it's about them. That's what he wants the Pharisees and the uh, the teachers of the law to catch. And that's what he wants us to catch today as his people in our hour. These stories are meant to reframe our view of God, of people, and of purpose. I've hit on the people, I've hit on the purpose, but just reframe our view of God for a moment. Um, When we see God in this way, so many people, and I imagine you've felt this way, I've felt this way, feel like God is, is distant that he's far away, and that we're trying to search out for him. What, What this story and what the life of Jesus reframes for us is that our story is not of humanity's search for God, but that it's God who's come searching for humanity. That Jesus is pursuing people. And that God is not a stoic, uh, unemotional, just kind of a a clockmaker that set the world in order. He's not a stern judge that's just ready to bring the punishment down on people. But but these stories in Jesus' life describe a God who has great joy and who celebrates people. And so our vision of who God is begins to change as we let this story sink deep within us as we begin to move to its music. Our vision of people and the way we view people changes as we let this music shape us. Our purpose in life, the way we think about our life changes as we let this impact our own hearts and minds and imaginations. And in the book of Revelation where Jesus gave these words to the churches, um, I, I think that he would speak to us out of this. And this is what I believe he would say. Uh, when we get to heaven, we can know if I was right or not, but I think this is good. Um, so I know our church. I know when I give this talk that you guys love this. I know that this is the type of people we want to be. I know that the reason many of us are following Jesus because, man, I like that Luke 15 Jesus. I like what he's doing. I want to be about that, and I want to be in a church that's about that. We like that. And I think Jesus would commend us for having that value 
in that heart. I love that I'm not preaching to hard-hearted people today. Uh, we, we can fall and be like tax collectors or Pharisees, but I know that your hearts are tender and you want to honor the Lord in this way, and I believe Jesus would commend us as a people for that. And just like in Revelation where he'd commend and then he'd also challenge, I believe that the Lord is challenging us in this season that this value would not just be a value that we hold in our hearts, but it would be a way that we live out our lives. It would be embodied in our actions. And I believe this is a place for us to grow. I believe this is a place for us and a time for us to be stretched, to be challenged, to step forward, to grow into the people that God has made us to be. I believe there's a challenge for us. And when we get to this part, if, you're, if you've been in one of these talks before, you're like, okay, you're going to want me to go door to door, knock on doors, tell people about Jesus. Please don't make me do that. I understand. Or you might be like, man, I tried to have a spiritual conversation with somebody at one time and it was so nervous. I was like a junior high boy asking a junior high girl out on a date. I just fumbled over my words. And I have a job and school and soccer practice and budgets. I, I, okay, I value this. I don't even know how I'm actually going to do anything with it. I mean, at least those are things that go through my mind. I don't know about you, but I imagine it's true. And I believe I have a simpler way forward for us uh, that will be really powerful and, and transformative. And it's summed up in this spiritual growth campaign that I would like to lead us in, a spiritual growth initiative, if you will, for this coming school year called Prepare the Feast for the City. Prepare the Feast for the City. Throughout Luke, uh, throughout this, these parables, there are feasts happening. Jesus is feasting with people. Shepherds are throwing feasts for their friends. Uh, homeowners are throwing feasts for their friends. In the third parable, the parable of the two lost sons, the father is throwing a feast. And I believe Jesus has called us to be people of the feast. Whereas you think of a feast as being like baked beans and brisket and that kind of stuff, which is good. I believe the feast that we are called to be and the feast that we are called to bring is our own lives. Is who we are. Is our spiritual gifts. And to bring those together to make a feast. Because when we take your gift of teaching and her gift of leadership and their gift of mercy, they're powerful on their own. But when we bring them together, it's kind of like putting baked beans and brisket and bread together. Something magical happens. The sum of the, of the whole is greater than the individual parts. When the body of Christ, when we come together with our spiritual gifts and we begin to use those in partnership with one another, incredible things happen transformational things happen. Generation-shaping things happen. And that's what I believe the Lord has for us. Last fall, we went through a teaching series on spiritual gifts, trying to help our church become aware of their gifts. We'll do some more things along that line that I'll talk about in a moment because we want you to be aware of your gifts. But we want to challenge ourselves to take those gifts that we have and begin to put them in action alongside the body of Christ in a greater way in the coming year. And I want to point out that this feast is for the city. Now, growing up, my friends were members of a country club, 
And in the summer, they would go to this country club. It had a pool. It had a ping pong table. It had a restaurant. It had a golf course. It had cute girls. It was where I wanted to be, except my family, we weren't members of the country club. And so my friends, they would say, well, we want you to come, uh, but I wasn't supposed to come. So they would sneak me in, and we would hope that no one was really watching. No one was really noticing, because I wanted to jump on the diving board, and I wanted to eat the food, and I wanted to play ping pong, and I wanted to be with my friends. So we'd sneak me in. Eventually, we got caught. They, you know, they kicked me out because the pool wasn't for me. It was for members. The ping pong table wasn't for me. It was for the members. The food wasn't for me. It was for the members. The country club was for the members. The church is very, very different. I want to read to you a quote from William Temple. He's the former Archbishop of Canterbury. And he says this, the church is the only institution that exists primarily for the benefit of those who are not its members. Let that, let that just sink in for a minute. The church is the only institution that exists primarily for the benefit of those who are not its members. And so when we're talking about preparing this feast and bringing our gifts and working together, it's not primarily for us. I believe you will be blessed in living this way because I believe that a life of service and a life of giving yourself on behalf of others is the fullest and richest life that you can live. But the end is not, man, is this more uh, comfortable or more likable for me? This is for our city. This is for people who are waking up today thinking Jesus has no relevance for their lives, or maybe if he did, it would be that he is against them. The church has no relevance for their lives, or if it did, it would be that the church is not for them. People that aren't waking up deciding, well, do I want to go to this church or that church or that church, but people just waking up this morning, blank slate. And we want to build a feast for them because we believe that Jesus loves them. We believe that Jesus is good news for them. We believe that Jesus values them. And that this is not meant to be a country club that exists for its members, but it's meant to be a feast for the city. That people could come and could partake and could enjoy the grace of God wherever they find themselves along the journey. Kevin Van Hooser said this about the church. The church is a microcosm of what God is doing to remake creation in Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. What that means is like when you go to Costco, if you were to go to Costco today, you know Sunday is sample day at Costco. My kids love it. You go and the people are at the end of the aisle and they'll give you a sample where you can taste it without buying in. You know, but the idea is that you're going to taste it and be like, oh, man, I want those corn dogs. The church is meant to be like a taste test for a lost and dying world. That people could see, oh, this is how good Jesus is. Not because we just proclaim it, although we should proclaim it, but because people experience it through the way we live our lives with one another and with them. A taste test 
for a lost and dying world, a microcosm of what God is doing to remake creation in Jesus Christ. So let's get some specifics. Here's, here's where I'd like to lead us. I'd like to see over the next year our church grow in knowing our spiritual gifts. I think this is such an important place to start. Because if you don't know your gifts, if you don't know that you're gifted, you're not going to know that you have anything to offer. But Jesus finds you valuable, and he's given you gifts that are not just to serve yourself, just to serve your family, but they're to serve people beyond you. They're to serve his purposes. And so I want to help you, and we want to help each other know our spiritual gifts. And knowing our spiritual gifts, not just have it as like, man, I took that test one time, or I know this thing, it kind of sits on a bookshelf that I don't really use. But we want to put them into action. We want to put them into action by joining a serve team. There are lots of ways you can put your gifts into action. But I was thinking about this. Uh, where in life do believers come together? Do the people of Jesus come together to not just me bring the best of me, but you bring the best of you? And we bring those things with other people. We bring all those together to offer to the world the sum of the whole is greater than individual parts. The sum of the church is greater than just my life and yours, my gifts and yours. But when we bring them together, something transformative happens. And our serve teams are a vehicle for that kind of partnership to happen, that kind of feast to be prepared. And if you're like, wait, what? You're talking about outside the four walls, and then you're talking about serve teams that are inside the four walls, I, like the music just stopped. or went, what's going on here? This is so important. Let me paint this picture for you. Our serve teams, our children's ministry, our welcome home team, all the other teams that we have, and we're adding teams. Those teams are not just to take care of the church so that we can have a nice church service. Those teams are mission teams. So that when you uh, talk to your neighbor and you find out that they're going through something and you know a place of hope that they can come where people aren't going to judge them but are going to be for them and they have two kids, you'd be like, I know some people that are great with kids. Come to my church. This will be a place for you and for your family. When you meet someone who's lonely and is new to the city and it's just like, does anyone care about me? you'll know there's a welcome home team here. And you'll be like, hey, you can come to my church and you can be a part of something. You can meet people and they'll accept you and bring you in. That's amazing. Can you see how for us to prepare a feast for the city with the serve teams are the feast or the thing that activates the feast so that a lost and dying world can come and partake. Our serve teams do not exist for us and for our own fulfillment. Our serve teams exist for the glory of God and the good of our neighbor. They exist to build God's kingdom, and it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop there, because as we serve on a consistent basis, I, I personally need a habit of serving anything that I want to get better at, that I want to incorporate more. I've got to have a habit, and I've got to have like a schedule. I find most people are that way. As you serve consistently... What it does is it gives you training and inspiration and people to help you live that way, not just when you're with your serve team, but all the time. 
that you would be salt and light in your workplace, that you would be salt and light in your school, that you would be salt and light in your neighborhood. And the serve team serves almost like as a trampoline to help you jump higher and to help you bounce into all that God has made you to be. So I want to invite you to grow in knowing your spiritual gifts and join a serve team and to use those gifts alongside the church on mission for our city. Now, what's our motive in doing this? Is this for the, the brand Antioch? Is this, uh, did you get this message from the higher-ups that, you know, you need to do this? So increase the brand presence. Is it about building a platform? Is it about voting power? We've got an election coming up. Do we need to get more votes for whatever? Is it any of that? No. Let me be clear. Our motive is not a brand, a platform, power, prestige. Our motive is love. Our motive is Jesus. This is what Jesus is about. Jesus is about loving people. Jesus is about eating with tax collectors and sinners. And he's left us his body with his spirit to be those kind of people. That's our motive. What happens if I don't do it? God will still love you. God will still value you. I I do believe that if we don't lean into living for others, if we don't lean into this kind of mission of Jesus, that that what happens, what happened to the Pharisees, what, what I believe happens to us is that our souls grow arthritic. They, they, they dry up. They, they go from being like a grape to being like a raisin, shriveled up raisin. When we lose sight of the purpose of our lives being about more than just us, that's where we end up. Our souls just shrink. What I've found in following Jesus is that the way to life is found in the way to life. In the way. That living in the way of Jesus is what allows us to live the fullest life possible. This is what allows you to live with a full heart. Because living, serving others, giving yourself away, not seeking to save your life, but seeking to give it away and lose it, that's where the life is meant to be found. That's where life is found. What happens if I do? I believe that you and I, that we'll grow more into who God's called us to be. And I believe that we'll see people's lives transform, that, that your faith story won't end with you, but it will, breathe, uh, will continue over to someone else. And that our city will be shaped and changed and blessed and that God will be honored. What if my gift isn't large? You might be asking that. Well, you know, I, I don't have that many gifts or the gifts I have aren't that big. Um, in 1961, President JFK went to the NASA uh, space Center as, as the U.S. was trying to put a man on the moon. And he saw a gentleman there who was working as a janitor, was sweeping the floor. And he went to kind of strike up conversation. He said, so what do you do here? And the man said, oh, I'm helping to put a man on the moon. He was a janitor, but he knew that he was a part of a story much bigger than him. The size of our gifts is not what's important here. The, the, the importance, the magnitude, the impact is not about the size of my gift, but it's about the team that I'm on and the mission that I have. So if you have a small gift, jump in because we have a great mission and we have a great king and we have a great team. Uh, so practical people, well, what, what are you asking me to do specifically? Uh, here's, what I'm, here's what I'm encouraging you with. 
uh, if you're new to our church, you don't know your gifts, or you're not on a serve team. One of those three types. If this strikes you and you're right there, but you're like, man, this is the type of person I want to be, and these are the types of people I want to partner with and be around, I want to invite you to our planted class. It happens next week. It happens once a month, and it is designed to help you connect with people It's designed to help you grow in your faith, help you learn your spiritual gifts, and get connected to a place of service, a team to serve on. So that's planted, and we're moving into, you know, the advanced technology here in our church. You don't have to fill out a card. You don't have to use your hand to write anything. You can just text planted to 970 and a link will be sent to you, and you can register for the class uh, next week. If you don't like using your phone, you can also register at the Welcome Home Desk uh, after the service. Okay, if you already are serving, which many of you are, but you're saying, I want to grow. I, I, just, I feel prompted in this season, that this time for more. I want to invite you to do our Antioch Discipleship School. It's opening enrollment right now. It begins September the 15th. And that school is a school we've done for a number of years. It meets uh, this year on Sunday evenings from 5 until 8 p.m., Part one is called the School of Transformation, and it'll run this fall. It's where you jump in. It meets once a week, and there's some outside reading, and it's a place in a community to really grow in. And we'd love to have you be a part. I lead that school along with a team. would love for you to be a student in it. It's designed for working professionals. It's designed for people with busy lives but who want to walk with Jesus in the midst of that. Part two, the school of ministry, is the second half of it, and we'll do that in the spring. And so if you've done the school of transformation, but you've never done school of ministry, hey, let's complete part two. That will be in the spring, enrolling in January. And there'll be an international mission trip that goes with it, part one, part two, part three. Now, if you're here and you're saying, well, I'm serving, and I've completed the discipleship school, and I want to grow, I just feel like there's, there's more for me to grow into then I want to invite you to be a pillar leader. And what I mean by that is there's so many people that are spiritual mothers and fathers in our church, so many people that are like these pillars that fill our building. They're like those types of people that just create space and a home for others. And if you've been serving and you've been through the discipleship school and you're like, man, I want to step up and I want to be that kind of, of person, that kind of pillar, I want to invite you to text call me pillar to 970-00. Okay. As we close, I want to invite you to stand. We'll be talking about this over the coming weeks and even uh, throughout the year, um, leaning into this together and growing alongside one another in letting this mission of Jesus uh, influence and affect our, our lives and our identity and our purpose in our church. Um, Right now, we want to take communion together as we close. When we celebrate communion, we take of the bread and we remember Jesus' body broken for us. And in that, Jesus has invited all of us to his table of friendship and of love. That that when we drink of, of the cup, we remember his blood poured out for us for the forgiveness of our sins. And we remember the types of people that we're calling ourselves to be, the people of Jesus. And so if the worship team can come forward and the officiants can can bring the elements, I'm going to pray for us. And then as the worship team leads us, you come when you're ready. You come as you feel led and then return to your seat and you can partake of communion. Jesus, we love you. 
Thank you that you are still seeking after lost sheep and lost coins and lost sons, prodigals and older brothers. Thank you that your heart, Lord, is to redeem humanity, to recreate humanity, Lord, to make us new, to make us into your people, defined by your love and your righteousness and your goodness, Lord. So as we take communion today, Lord, we want to let it sink deep uh, to remember what you've done on our behalf and the mission that you've given us as your people. In Jesus' name, amen. You can come forward when you're ready.
Against me.